It is good to be with you this morning, and uh, we will be looking this morning at Psalm 55, so I ask if you would open your Bibles to the book of Psalms <coughs> so that we can read this chapter in its entirety, Psalm 55. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Psalm chapter 55, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble on me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away, I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and the tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to shale alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be removed. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Ask if you'd join me in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we are grateful that you are merciful to us in ways far beyond what we could ever ask, imagine, or think. We pray, O Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that you would open our hearts, that you would not only help us to see your transcendent glory, but that in looking upon you in your word, that we would see how far we fall short, that you would convict us of our sin, O Lord, that you would give unto us the grace of Christ, that we may repent of our sin, And in being further conformed unto the holy image of Christ, you would bring glory to your name. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Whenever we read the book of Psalms, I think one of the most important things that we have to remember is that 
This is ultimately a book about Jesus. If you recall, as Jesus was walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he spoke to these two disciples and he told them in Luke chapter 24, verse 44 and following, these are my words that I spoke while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he says, must be fulfilled. And so what this means is that when we're reading the Psalms, it's not that just we're reading, looking for a few isolated promises or prophecies about Christ, but rather in one way or another, the entire book of the Psalms is about Jesus Christ. It relates somehow to his person or to his work, to his ministry. And in this particular case, what we can say is that this particular psalm gives us a window into the sufferings of Christ. I think so often it's the case that we can see the shadowy figure of Jesus as he is in the Gospels. We see him suffering. We see him hanging upon the cross. We see him reviled. We see him betrayed. But we don't know exactly or precisely what it was that was going through his mind. We can perhaps guess, but I think where we can find and say that the Gospels are silent, what we can do is we can fill in some of the gaps with passages that we find here from the Psalms. Now, what I don't want to say is I don't want to say that the Psalms here are giving us an exact transcript of Christ's suffering, but rather we can certainly say that they are nevertheless giving us an accurate impression. In other words, if you've ever had the ability to go and behold, say, an impressionist piece of art, say, for example, a Renoir, uh, you can sometimes look at the painting, you can squint and kind of close your eyes, and even though it's a somewhat impressionistic, kind of blurry image as to what the artist wants you to see, if you squint, it can look clear enough that you can discern what's going on. And you can get an excellent idea as to what's going on in the portrait. Well, this is what I think is going on here in Psalm 55, is that this particular psalm gives us an impressionistic window, if you will, into the betrayal that Jesus Christ himself experienced in his own ministry. Again, going back to Jesus' words to his disciples on the road to Emmaus in chapter 24 of Luke's gospel in the 46th verse, he said, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. This, of course, speaking of what was contained in the book of the Psalms about the person and work of Christ. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to keep this in mind as we look at Psalm 55 first by looking at David's particular situation in the first 11 verses. We have to understand something as to what David was going through so that we can understand ultimately how this gives us a window into the sufferings of Christ. Secondly, we want to see what uh, David has to say about his betrayer. What does he have to say about his betrayer? And he speaks of this in verses 12 through 14, as well as verses 20 through 21. He tells us important details about the nature of the person who betrayed him. 
And then third and finally, we want to look at the refuge that David holds out in verses 15 through 19 and in verses 22 through 23. So we want to see David's situation. We want to see his betrayer. And then ultimately, we want to see the hope that David holds out for us in the person and work of Christ as the only one who can give us refuge when we ourselves are ultimately the ones who betray Jesus. So let's keep this in mind. So let's look at first at the situation which we find in verses 1 through 11. We come upon David when the situation is dire. And he described his physical state in verses 3, 4, and 5 as one where he is surrounded by his enemy. He speaks in verse 4 of the terror of death. And he even speaks of trembling and horror overwhelming him. So David is in a bad way, to say the least. You know, I can remember uh, when I was in seminary, there was a friend of mine uh, who received absolutely terrifying and devastating news. So much so that upon receiving that news, he was physically stricken. He collapsed and he became physically ill at hearing this bad news. This is the nature as to David's particular circumstance. This this particular situation reminds me uh, at least of one instance in, in history of the Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. In this ancient battle, there were 7,000 Greek soldiers that faced a Persian army of 150,000 soldiers. Talk about being outnumbered. Uh, I'm not uh, very good at math, but that's a really lopsided kind of, you know, uh, battle. 7,000 on one side, 150,000 on the other I'm guessing that that's somewhere around 20 to 1. And if it's not, Kevin, don't tell me. I don't want to know. I don't think my self-esteem could take it. So it's a huge lopsided battle. And at the key point in the battle, 300 Spartans, 300 Spartans. So you're talking 300 of their elite soldiers. In fact, there have been several movies made of the 300 Spartans. 300 Spartans and some other 1,500 soldiers fought the Persians at a pass at Thermopylae. They were overwhelming odds. And even though the Spartans were able to inflict significant heavy losses upon the Persians they were nevertheless eventually eliminated. They all died because they were surrounded. They were outnumbered. And I think this is the situation as to what we find for David. He's outnumbered. He's surrounded. He says in verse 1, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. He's surrounded on all sides. 
Unlike the Spartans, who relied upon their own military training, their prowess, and their own courage, David turned to the only one to whom he could turn, which was the Lord. He's the only one who, when surrounded by his enemies, could turn to to the Lord to deliver him. And so he called upon the Lord to deliver them. He says in verses 9 and following, Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around, on its, uh, go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. He describes the surrounding city as one just rife with sin. And it's here that I can't help but think that David gives us a prophetic glance, an impression, if you will, into the city of Jerusalem in the days of Christ. When Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on the foal of a colt, Matthew tells us in his gospel that the whole city stirred up saying, who is this? Who is this that's coming into the city? And that the crowds responded, This is Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so the people at first received Jesus with praise. They brought out palm branches and they were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. I think they were anticipating that Jesus would come in and run off the Romans. And rather than running off the Romans, what did Jesus do? He went into the temple and he cleansed it. He chased off the money changers. He turned over the tables when in his holy anger and rage, he rebuked them for turning his father's house of prayer into a den of thieves. In those particular circumstances, we can definitely say that Jesus was surrounded He was surrounded mostly by people who were hostile to him, who wanted to kill him. He was surrounded on all sides by his enemies. And at that particular point, the more that you read the gospel narratives, you can sense there is an impending head-on collision coming between Jesus and his enemies. But I suspect for Jesus that he could endure all of that. He could understand these people don't know me. They hate me. I have attacked their institutions. I have run off their money changers. I have accused them of sin. They're sinful. They're wrong. But I can understand why. They would hate me. For Jesus, I suspect what struck him to the core of his heart and in a sense broke it was the fact not that the crowds despised him and hated him, but rather it was those who were closest to him that turned their backs on him. Which brings us to our second point. And David's betrayer. He says in Psalm 55, verse 12, For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. 
It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from it. He says, it's not from the rabble out there. I can handle all of that. He says in verse 13, but it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. What has stricken David to his very core is the fact that it's not that he's surrounded by these enemies as difficult a scenario as that is, but rather it's his closest of friends who has betrayed him. He says, I can take the slings and the arrows from the outsider, but how could you, my close friend, turn on me? Look at the stacking of terms. He says, you... He's speaking and he's pointing, in a sense, to somebody very specific. My equal. We can see each other eye to eye. My companion. My fellow friend. You know, if you think about it, in the Hebrew language, there's no way of indicating the superlative. You don't say the holiest. You say... God is holy, holy, holy. Or when Jesus really wanted to underscore a point, he says, truly, truly, I say unto you. It's like, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. Or the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, when he wanted the Romans to understand that he was willing to be cut off into a curse from Christ, which is almost an unbelievable claim, when he says, I tell the truth, I am not lying, I speak the truth in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I'm telling you the truth, I'm telling you the truth, I'm telling you the truth. The fact that David stacks up four points of familiarity when he says you, when he says my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, this was somebody who was close. This was somebody who was exceptionally close. At old Princeton, in Princeton Seminary, back in the days of B.B. Warfield, the great lion of Princeton, one of the things that he used to do with Gerhardus Voss is the two of them could be seen on campus taking walks together. It almost makes you wonder, boy, that would have been fun to listen in on those conversations, to be a a fly on the shoulder, so to speak, and go along for the ride and listen in. They were good friends. They were colleagues. They worshiped together. They went to church together. Imagine that kind of a friendship, but yet one that is even closer And David is reeling because his closest of close friends has stabbed him in the back. Once again, I can't help but think that what David gives us here in the events of his own life, as he, as a Messiah, is foreshadowing the events of the life of the Messiah, is Jesus' own betrayal. When David writes in verses 20 and 21, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his hearts. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Judas's betrayal appears in all four Gospels and in the book of Acts. Surely this tells us that this was a terrible thing. 
And of all things, Judas betrayed Jesus at the Last Supper, the most intimate of settings, as Christ supped alone with his disciples and no others. Think of all of the things that Jesus shared with Judas. Think of the miracles. Raising Lazarus from the dead, feeding the 4,000, feeding the 5,000. Think of the Passover meal. You know, one of the things that I can recall is when I was in seminary, I knew that R.C. Sproul was coming to town uh, and he was going to be giving a conference. So I thought, what's the worst that can happen? I'll write him a letter and say, is there any way that we and I could bring me and a couple of my friends and we could have a meal with you? Breakfast, lunch, dinner, coffee, you name it, we'll be there wherever it is that you want us to be. And wouldn't you know it that his assistant wrote back and said, yes. And so we're like, oh, this is great. We got a chance to have breakfast with him. My friends ate breakfast. I didn't. I couldn't afford it. I think they stiffed him with the bill. But it was so fun because from somebody that I had read his books, seen his, him at conferences, been able to watch him from afar, uh, you know, listen to his audio tapes and all of the messages. And now here I was eating breakfast and sitting down with him. Or at least he was eating breakfast. I was watching. I felt all of a sudden a great degree of closeness that I hadn't had before with him because I'd only seen him from afar. Multiply that by a hundred, and that's the type of intimacy that the disciples shared with Jesus. They were with Jesus through everything, through thick and thin, through all of the miracles, through all of the trials, through all of the reviling. And now here it was, the eve of his crucifixion, and they were sharing the most intimate of meals. The Passover. And Judas, Jesus' friend and his disciples, one of him who walked with him for three years, would betray him with a kiss. We see windows into Christ's betrayal scattered throughout the scriptures. Think of Joseph's betrayal by his brothers. He was sold into slavery by his own flesh and blood. Think of the people's rebellion against Moses in the wilderness. Think of Saul's betrayal of David. And so here when he says, my companion stretched out his hand against his friend, he violated his covenant. I can't help but think that this gives us a shadowy image of Judas's betrayal of Jesus. And yet, we should realize that Judas wasn't the only one to betray him. Remember what Peter said. Peter boasted that he would die with Christ. And yet, what did he do? He betrayed him three times. He, He denied him three times. You remember, where were all of the disciples when Christ was being interrogated by the religious leaders? He was alone. Think of the disciples as they ran for cover when we read of David's words in verses 12. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. 
And I think we begin to get a window into the heart of what Jesus was thinking and feeling as he was abandoned and betrayed by all of his disciples. Now, I think it's perhaps only natural that as we think of these things and we meditate upon Christ and as we look upon Christ's sufferings through the lens of this psalm, that we might have the tendency to put ourselves in the place of Jesus. Maybe our mind begins to think back to the ways in which we have been betrayed. And we think of ourselves as the one betrayed rather than as a betrayer. Think of God and how he created us as his image bearers. As the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And yet, despite this exalted place... What did we all do in Adam but betray our faithful covenant Lord? And so God has showered us in his mercy. He's lifted us out of the mire. He has clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. So much so that John can say in 1 John 3, 1, What wonderful manner of love is this that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And in spite of this Mercy, in spite of this grace, in spite of God's love for us in Christ and the redemption that he has given us, how often do we wander? How often do we walk in the paths of wickedness and engage in sin? How often do the words of verse 20 describe us, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends, He violated his covenant. There's a sense in which we should feel the weight of that. But beloved, that's not where the psalm ends. There's hope here. And it's ultimately Christ who is our refuge, which brings us to our third and final point. For those who do not seek the forgiveness of sins and their betrayals. I think that David says very clearly that the judgment of God will certainly fall upon them. Verse 23, But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. So David knew that his wicked betrayers would face judgment. And so notice what he says in verse 22 as he turns to the Lord when he says this, Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Christ never wavered in his trust in the Father. As he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying alone, he said, Not my will, but thine be done. And even as he hung there in the shame and the suffering of the cross, 
Even when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He still is crying out, my God. In other words, he still remains faithful. You will not permit the righteous to be moved. And so, beloved in Christ, it is Christ's faithfulness that constitutes the foundation for the forgiveness that we can receive for all of our betrayals. David found forgiveness in Psalm 51 when he betrayed Uriah the Hittite, when he committed sin against Bathsheba, when he committed sin ultimately against the Lord. And so in the face of betrayals of his brothers in the flesh, Jesus uttered seemingly unthinkable words, but they are words that ultimately give us hope. As he hung upon the cross, he cried out to God the Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We can receive the forgiveness of our sins for our betrayals against Christ. And in receiving forgiveness for our betrayals, God gives us the strength to persevere in the face against others when they may betray us. Because as God redeems us by his grace, he, as Paul says in Galatians 4.19, forms Christ in us. And this is what lies at the heart of the Lord's prayer is as God forgives us for betraying him, for betraying Christ, and he does so through the faithfulness of Christ, he who was betrayed, he then forms us into the image of Christ so that we can in turn forgive those around us who betray us and Remain strong, remain unmoved, remain righteous in the face of betrayals. As Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is why in the end this psalm holds out hope. Yes, it's a psalm where David is surrounded. Yes, it's a psalm where he is betrayed. But if we walk through the psalm, And we say, oh, Lord, forgive me, I have betrayed you. He then equips us to be able to stand firm when we are betrayed. And even to extend the grace of forgiveness to those who betray us. So that like Christ, we can say, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we can do so confidently knowing that if people do not seek our forgiveness, and if they persist in their betrayal, then we know that God will judge them. God will hold them accountable. And so, beloved, in the midst of all of this, when we find ourselves faced with betrayal, we can remember Paul's words to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. We can rest assured that God will comfort us in our betrayals. He will forgive us for our betrayals. 
He will give us the grace to forgive those who betray us. And that's why I think that if we think upon any verse as one to to write upon the walls of our hearts from this particular psalm, it would be this in verse 22. In the face of betrayal, we can say with David, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. May it be said so of us that we would remember that we have been forgiven for all of our betrayals against God through Christ and that he would equip us to face betrayal and to forgive those who betray us. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh, Father God, we can be so faithless and we can walk and wander and stray from the path of righteousness and betray you in so many ways. But we give thanks, O Lord, that rather than meet our sin with justice, you have met our sin with grace, with forgiveness, with love, and with mercy. And so for this we are grateful, O Lord, that you have loved us in Christ and you have forgiven us of our betrayals. O Lord, before we begin to think of how others have betrayed us, we pray that you would help us to remove the log from our eye and that you would cause us to repent of how we betray you. And Father, with our eyesight cleared of those logs of betrayal, that we would be able to see clearly to remove the specks from our brother's eyes. In so doing, O Lord, may you fill us with grace, with love and forgiveness, and enable us, as Christ said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, to extend forgiveness to those who betray us. O Lord, if we have received such great forgiveness, how can we begrudgingly withhold that same mercy and grace to those around us? Help us to remember, O Lord, that we are Judas, that we are your other 11 disciples who fled, and yet you extended to us mercy and grace. And that in that power of Christ that you would enable us to forgive those around us. But Father, fill us with confidence and hope, knowing that if those who have betrayed us do not seek our forgiveness, that we, O Lord, would rest confident knowing that the righteous shall not be moved, that there is nothing that can happen to us that is apart from your will, and that everything that happens to us, O Lord, is not only according to your will, but is ultimately for our edification, for our conformity to Christ, and for your glory. Give us the wisdom and humility to submit to your holy providence, that we would be further conformed unto the image of Christ and that we would bring glory to your name. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.